Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. What is happening? I am Mal Foster, and you are listening to, or perhaps even watching, the full video version of this, the latest episode of your third favorite, above average, but infinitely curious podcast, Dined Out. Now, for those of you who have been with the show for some time, you will be very well aware of my innate and natural ability to waffle on for days, especially in these bloody introductions. But this week, I am going to try emphasis on the try to curb that because I want to jump into the meat of this week's episode pretty quickly. As you can see from the title, it is the second and I will add concluding part of me reading from my travel memoir. Yeah, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, then obviously I encourage you to go check that out and catch yourself up to speed in full detail. But if you simply do not have the time or you just cannot be asked, either way, I completely understand don't worry because I will try and catch you up to what this is all about and what we're going to be looking at in this episode as quickly as possible. So, the travel memoir in question, it was something that I designed to accompany a life-altering decision, literally a life-altering decision, and that was to go on my very first solo travel adventure It was the first time I'd been to the United States by myself. It was the first time I'd been to any country, period, by myself. And it was a big, big deal. Having existed, not lived, but existed in a pretty deep, dark hole of depression and anxiety in my mid-twenties, I had overcome a number of obstacles. You know, I'd lost a lot of weight. I had begun to feel better about myself, I was beginning to gain more confidence, I was beginning to see the world in a brighter way, I was beginning to feel like I actually could do things, and I was allowing myself to do things, and one of those big things, the biggest thing, arguably, was to do this, to take on this challenge. It was a challenge and it was a reward, you know, it was a big obstacle to overcome, but it was allowing me to experience things, to experience life for the first time in a long time. So yeah, the travel memoir was designed to document that whole experience and what it was like. I only managed to get as far as New York, the first section and the first draft of that first section before I abandoned it. So that's what last week's and this week's episode is concentrating on. Last week's episode, I read verbatim word for cringeworthy, word line for line through the first two chapters. This week I'm not going to be doing that because, yeah, I'm just, I'm not. So what I've done is I have at the the sort of sacrifice of looking at everything with completely fresh eyes, I have scalped the remaining four chapters into what I would call, with big chunky quotation marks, the best bits of the remaining four chapters, the best bits of my time documented in New York. Yeah, you're going to go to some places, you're going to meet some characters, a character in particular, and you are going to be thrust into my musings on different aspects and sort of parts of life, I guess. So yeah, we're going to just dive into it. 
yeah, this is me <laughs> combing through the streets of Brooklyn uh, as a 30-year-old. Yeah, here we go. Alright, so as I said, uh, we're going to be touching on some sort of uh, fabric of life type things. The the things that are in everyday existence that make up modern living. And one of those things is coffee shops and coffee culture. That's where we start. So this is on my second real day. Not including the day travelling, but my second actual day in New York. And, and it's me out and about on the streets of uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn in the morning. For the most part, I believe myself to be a person of mature thought and emotion. I would already argue against this. Right now, I would argue against that opening line. Because this guy, this guy who wrote this was, was anything but, really. For the most part, I believe myself to be a person of mature thought and emotion. But in many ways, I could be considered a certified man-child. Responsibility as a whole has often evaded me, or perhaps it's the other way round. It probably is the other way around. Yeah, no, it, it definitely was. I've never once entertained the idea of the dreaded C word. That's Korea, by the way, not cancer. Although, to be fair, the thought of either one is terrifying. Maybe it's a willful sense of arrested development, or perhaps I'm just organically hardwired to avoid meeting particular expectations. There is, essentially, a part of me that willingly avoids adulthood. The material manifestation of this can be found in coffee. Or rather, my non-existent relationship with coffee. Hot Java, whether it be home-brewed or handed across the counter of overpriced outlets, has always had the adult label attached to it. It's one of those things that people seem to embrace as some kind of status enhancer. A trendy verification of metropolitan living or a lifestyle device adopted to signify maturity. Coffee is a drink for grown-ups. Serious grown-ups. Serious grown-ups who are serious about their life goals. It's strictly for closers. For savvy intellectuals with sobering ideologies. For scholars with provocative thoughts. Coffee is the piping hot nectar of the artiste, the soulful contributor. It fuels refined discussion and is reserved for those who permeate sophisticated cool. This is the bourgeois frame in which I've come to see coffee, or more specifically, coffee culture. Alright, so obviously I wasn't a fan, but I feel like I'm going way overboard, and the fact that I'm using all of that to describe something I dislike or don't particularly care for at that time as bourgeois is incredibly hypocritical. I... Ugh. I just... Do you ever have this where sometimes you will read something you've written, whether it's like a social media status or a travel memoir, for those of you who do that? God knows who who does that kind of thing. But have you ever read something back from the past and just thought, who is this person? That's uh, that's where my headspace is at right now. Coffee's brilliant, and this person's an idiot. Anyway, let's get <laughs> let's get back into it. Part of this thinking stems from my time as a barista, a job that was not just a state of employment, but rather an open window to the uglier side of everyday humanity. All right, I will say this. I'm going to stick with that statement. It is. If ever you've worked in a coffee shop, yeah, you get regulars who are nice. You get people that come in once in a while that are nice. You have people that you work with that are nice. But yeah, it really is, as I say here, 
an open window to the uglier side of everyday humanity. If you've done that job, I, I feel like you may may fully understand where current me and past me are coming from. As a species, we are becoming obsessively insular, and our train of thought continuously orbits around one singular subject, ourselves. Hell, the very existence of this book is proof of that. That's actually true. I'm calling people out for being self-centered, and yet I'm writing a book about myself. But our continued spiral into the depths of selfishness has awoken a hateful beast by the name of self-entitlement. In this downloadable, on-demand world of instant access, we are plugged into a skewed network of self-indulgence and publicly shared attention-seeking. With unlimited options and accessibility literally at our fingertips, Generation X has made way for Generation Expectation. That's, do you know what, that's kind of a shitty line, but it's also kind of not, I'm kind of on the fence with that. Generation X has made way for Generation Expectation. Mm, I'm not sure how I feel. But it's not just young people that exhibit this behaviour. Don't let that disposable line lead you to think that this is a sentiment of generational disgruntlement. We are all guilty of vibrating upon wavelengths of self-entitlement. It's just that some of us broadcast on a higher frequency than others. Some of the worst perpetrators that I have personally encountered just so happen to be richly marinated in the pompous aroma of coffee culture. Again, I'm calling people out for being pompous and I'm using phrases like that. Soy, skinny, half and half, no foam, brew to particular temperature. I don't know why I sound so bitchy. I suppose it's just the tone of voice that I wrote this in that it requires me to sound bitchy. So we'll just stick with that. <laughs> Soy, skinny, half and half, no foam, brew to particular temperatures, assembled in a certain fashion. I have encountered so many ridiculously specific customizations in my time, and yes, I get it. We all have our own idiosyncrasies and preferred configurations, but from my experience, the self-indulgent micromanagement attached to meticulous caffeine crafting hits an entirely new level of snobbery. (sighs) Again, how am I railing against anybody? I mean, the point is valid. I do feel like the point is valid, and it is still a pet peeve, but I mean, like, I cannot call anyone out for snobbery and then just unravel that, whatever that is. It's by no means the most horrific example of humanity. Well, it's not, is it? I mean, genocide is is a few notches above people being arsy about a coffee order. But hey, it's by no means the most horrific example of humanity. But when you find yourself ingesting this kind of poison on the regular, it's easy to see why you yourself may become venomous. Granted, like many other bad reputations that have preceded it, asinine coffee guy syndrome has probably been cultivated by a few rather than the many. Perhaps it's the behaviour of this minority which has tainted my view of coffee. Perhaps it's simply a case of my intolerance growing stronger. Shit, maybe it's just a petty expulsion of jealousy over the fact that these people know what it is that they want whilst I continue to fumble in the dark. That is maybe actually very true. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it stems from. That these arsy coffee people know exactly what they want. And uh, and I don't. That could very well be. I'm just doing some real armchair amateur psychology here. But that may that may be a, a point. There may be a point in there for sure. Whatever the reason behind the divide, due to the lack of sweet vital sleep, I still find myself sat in a local coffee joint. 
Skips was one of the first featured places in Chloe's guidebook, and immediately upon entering it, it has a number of stereotypical checkpoints. Bearded employees with Woody Allen eyewear, a mix of whimsical indie music, and a number of handmade flyers promoting fair trade. All of this elicits the type of vibe I half expected to find. Yet despite an immediate feeling that I didn't belong, a part of me kind of wishes that I did. And I feel like there's some truth in that too, because I actually do quite enjoy going to coffee shops now. I do actually feel like I am part of that clientele that I am um, shitting on. You know, I think that really does speak to, to my reluctant hipster side. You know, there is very much a part of me which is... Uh, hipster-esque, hipsterific. Uh, I don't know what the actual word would be, but I've always been a little bit reluctant to sort of fully embrace it, I guess. But yeah, I think maybe I'm hitting on some some home truths here. Uh, I, I used to be a lot more catty, <laughs> as you can probably tell. I'm a lot more sort of subdued and laid back and, and just don't really care as much anymore. I used to just rag on things I didn't like. I used to be that guy. Now I'm just like, I honestly don't care because it doesn't affect me. I don't have to be bothered by it if I don't want to be. But at the same time, the things that I don't like other people do. Um, I was not that person back then. I was, I was still very much looking for, maybe not where I belong, but who, who I am, I guess. We kind of touched upon this in the episode with Kayla a couple of weeks ago about finding your calling, finding where you're meant to be in your own time, on your own terms. And I feel like it very much applies to an internal realisation as well, finding out who you are on your own time, in your own terms. All right, so we're going to move swiftly on and we're going to introduce you to the first and major character, actually, that sort of appears and I say character because this is a real person and everything that I mentioned here is real does happen is something that was relayed to me through conversation but as a person as somebody I had met they were very much a character uh, in, in a number of ways and I think you'll kind of pick up on what I'm saying when we get into it upon my return I find myself interrupting a freeway conversation between Chloe Chris and a woman called Mia Despite meeting Chris, the male counterpart to my hosting duo for the first time, it's the introduction of Mia that immediately fascinates me. A slender, pale-skinned woman with a full head of curly hair and an uncommon lilt to her accent, she was a sudden anomaly to say the least. Upon grabbing my daybag and heading back into the living room, Mia asks me if I'd like to join her for breakfast. Despite having already eaten, I see it as an opportunity for interaction, and despite the continued chess game taking place between me and my social anxiety, I accept. As we head down towards a nearby diner named Tina's, I learn that Mia is Australian, and that Brooklyn is just one of many varied stops on her journey. As we navigate the sidewalk, Mia tells me that she arrived early this morning, and despite her late arrival, her time at Chris and Chloe's apartment is limited to just one night. She's staying in New York for a week, but Bushwick was just a stopgap between Paris and Williamsburg. Tina's is a pretty standard diner, the kind of blue-collar breakfast joint you've probably seen a dozen times on TV. A long plastic counter runs across the front and a number of booths wrapped in red pleather are sat opposite. It's hard to gauge Mia's full story, a fact that becomes even more apparent with time. The reason being is that Mia tells her tale in such a fragmented fashion. It's almost as if she presumes you already have a base knowledge of who she is, what she's doing and where she's come from. Almost immediately she jumps straight towards the middle, 
and from here I'm constantly trying to work my way backwards, while simultaneously building a frame of reference. Another trying factor is that she doesn't appear to be a good listener. <laughs> this, is actually, this, is, this is bringing back a lot of memories, and all of this is true. She was somebody that would just dive into it with that expectation that you were already up to speed, and whenever you tried to contribute something, it would just sort of get deflected. Anyway, particular comments or questions fly right over her head without the slightest hint of recognition. At first, I attributed this to jet lag, lack of sleep, or a combination of the two. After all, she had only just arrived from Paris early that morning, but further interactions with me throughout the week would suggest that is more likely to be a habitual trait of hers. Still, besides the extra work required, I did find Mia to be quite fascinating. From what I had pieced together, she was somewhere in her 40s, had two kids back home and was travelling to various places across the globe in order to research a video game she was writing, or helping to write as part of a team, or helping someone to write. Again, the finite details are sketchy at best. As the waitress returned with our orders, Mia continued to unravel her journey so far. She told me of how she started off in India, exploring a series of impoverished villages before heading over to Sweden, where she had spent this weekend canoeing. From there, she found herself in the capital of France, exploring the city's infamous catacombs before touching down at JFK. Whilst trying to tie all of these aspects together, I began to question whether I'd heard correctly the part about her writing a video game, or if she was just an avid fan looking to emulate the life of Lara Croft. I also found myself wondering where her kids figured into all of this. I'm not necessarily doubting her parenting skills, but it's a touch unusual to leave your family in order to venture across whitewater rapids and investigate caves. Despite the splintered conversation over breakfast, which admittedly wasn't made any easier by certain distractions, such as a loud TV blaring Wheel of Fortune and catheter commercials, I did enjoy my time with Mia. Despite her selective hearing and her penchant for missing out major details when explaining things, she had a zestful attitude to life. She was out there, facing the world, doing the kind of adventurous things people do on adventures. She was chatty, chipper, and unafraid to throw herself into experiences. She was socially embracing and so steeply immersed in the whole once-in-a-lifetime philosophy that should accompany this kind of opportunity. Upon leaving Tina's and heading our separate ways, she insisted that we swap numbers. So, fueled by curiosity and in an effort to take a page out of Mia's book, I agreed. I had no idea if I would actually see her again. In fact, I wasn't entirely sure if I actually wanted to see her again. But I was allowing myself to be open to the possibility. So there is your introduction to Mia. I think you can understand what I meant when I said she is a bit of a character. Very much a real person, very much a real conversation. And from what I can tell, she was being honest, so those were very much fragments from a real life and experience. More of her, and more of that, a little bit later. But for now, we find ourselves heading into the city, and in particular, making a pilgrimage to the Museum of Modern Art. The rest of my afternoon is spent at the MoMA, an institution that was high on my to-do list long before leaving for New York. I'm not alone in this line of thinking, as by the time I arrive at the entrance, the lobby is already spilling over with numerous visitors. After weaving in amongst the tide of fellow onlookers, I purchase a ticket and head into the main crux of the building. I am by no means a knowledgeable source when it comes to art, but have always been curious and quietly fascinated, an observer of sorts, and with six floors of exhibits, artifacts and installations to view, 
there is plenty to feed my passive appreciation. From globally renowned artists and iconic pieces to names I am only just discovering, the MoMA boasts a vast wealth of visual awe. So when presented with such splendour, what do I do? I take photos with my phone, of course. An admittedly strange trait that is shared by many, it seems. In every room there are fellow tourists snapping pictures of various pieces, behaviour that further supports the idea that as a species, we consistently feel the need to preserve and document all that we encounter. I suppose that's true, but I suppose I can't really call anybody out or criticise anyone for doing that, because I'm doing that myself. As I say, I'm taking pictures and I'm also writing about this, and I'm making a podcast about this. So if anyone is is really, uh, like stuck on the idea of documenting stuff, it's, it's very much me. I'd like to think the majority of people do so in an effort to savour these experiences and to immortalise these all-too-fleeting moments, but the truth is, it's more likely done to garner attention from others. I can hardly condemn this considering I am just as guilty, see? I mean, for God's sake, I'm writing a book based on my personal experiences with the vain hopes that it might mean something to someone other than myself. So, I mean, you know, say what you will about my hypocrisy here, but at least I am, uh, at least I'm self, self-aware. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm one of those good hypocrites. I'm a self-aware hypocrite. <laughs> Still, despite being conscious to the vulgarity of this, I continue to snap away and begin to amass a digital collection of selected favourites. My personal preference belongs to work of a more abstract persuasion. Beyond a purely aesthetical attraction, there is a sincere appreciation and a true sense of empathy for the messy, untraditional and anarchic values of this particular style. The lack of definitive answers and the presence of layered possibilities appeals to me twofold. The unconventional behaviour of the genre speaks to my unstructured tendencies, but also excites the side of me which often encourages chaos. That is, is like, I suppose there is truth to that. Those are some of the reasons I do like sort of abstract art um, and surrealism, but Again, there's a there's a much more condensed, less arsy way of putting it. There is a there is a way that I can say that without sounding like such a pretentious dick. <laughs> However, as open as I am to vague interpretation and the expansive parameters that so often accompany the art world, I just oh, I sound so pompous. <sighs> However, as open as I am to vague interpretation and the expansive parameters that so often accompany the art world. There are a number of exhibits and individual pieces that bear absolutely no meaning to me. A vast majority of the sixth floor fits firmly into this particular category. The top flight of MoMA's impressive building was, at the time, dedicated to the work of Yoko Ono, somebody who is known primarily for political activism and for being the woman who killed the Beatles. (laughs) Is that true? I feel like she actually is known for her art uh, a bit more than just those two things. Now, in hindsight, I I realise that, but I suppose back then, uh, that was my impression. I I might be wrong, I don't know, maybe people can answer this to me. What is your impression of Yoko? What do you know Yoko for? My dislike for much of her work doesn't stem from the latter or even the former. In fact, the former is something I commend her for. Now, my dislike stems from the fact that in my humble, lowly estimation, a lot of her work is just shit. One exhibit on display contained an apple sat on a plastic plinth, a simple piece that could be easily interpreted as more as one more ride on her dead husband's coattails. Ooh, ooh, that's quite, that's quite brutal. Another exhibit featured two people covered with a black cloth. 
Now, granted, you could perceive this to be some kind of stark representation of mankind's futile crusade against death, or as some nihilistic textured portrayal of sadness and all its smothering influence, but really, all I saw were two people covered by a black cloth. Nothing more, nothing less. And I suppose this is the thing, like, now I wouldn't be as bothered. As I mentioned before, I I was, (laughs) and as you can probably tell, I was a lot more catty to things I didn't care for. Uh, Now I'm just like, eh, it's not for me. Back then, I was just like, it's not for me, and it shouldn't be for anybody else. This is nonsense. Well, maybe not as harsh as that, but I was more sort of in line with that than I am just the the laissez-faire attitude I have these days. Outside of visual treats, the Yoko Love Fest stretched out into other mediums such as music. Towards the back, there was a small room dedicated to the recordings of her plastic band, rapidly mauling instruments. But the piece of the resist actually, I will just say a second, I haven't actually listened to any of Yoko Ono and the Plastic Band's music since. I may actually have a more deeper appreciation for it because my interest in sort of abstract uh, music has has grown exponentially since then. So back then, yeah, I may have just thought this is a bunch of noisy nonsense. Now I actually might like it. I'm really stressing the might because I don't know. That might be a little bit of homework. Maybe I'll go back and and check out some plastic band stuff and and get back to you. But back then, obviously, wasn't a fan. Anyway, the the rest of this goes on to talk about one of her short films called Bottoms, which is basically just like loops, black and white film loops of of people's naked asses walking down the street. Uh, You know, again, it is what it is. If if you find that to be meaningful or you can find some sort of uh, meaning to it, then, then fair play. I, I just, I, I didn't. And again, I haven't seen any of Yoko's short films since I was in that exhibition. And uh, even if I did, I don't really think I'd... I mean, I wouldn't be as hostile, but... Yeah. It's just stars, isn't it? It's just... <laughs> it's just a loop of people's bare backsides. Anyway, that was my time at the moment. I, I did generally really enjoy visiting uh, the moment. I just enjoy visiting any art gallery, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Insightful. All right, from silliness to some seriousness. I touched upon in the first episode in last week's show that, uh, yeah, I had been a teetotal for about seven and a half years at this point, which uh, happened for a number of reasons, primarily because I was having quite the uh, abusive relationship with alcohol prior. Not that I was drinking every day, but I was drinking a lot when I did uh, to to mass excess, and it was becoming a problem, so I stopped. And uh, yeah, once I stopped, I was afraid to go back, and that's just a little bit of context for, for this section about lone drinking. After charging both the battery in my phone and the one inside my sun-drenched body, I decided to... Again, why can't I just say I had a nap and charge my phone? <laughs> I decided to head out into the local neighbourhood in the hopes of tackling the lone drinking conundrum. So yeah, because I've been teetotal for a while and because I'm dealing with social anxiety, you know, I was really, really hesitant to go and sit in a bar by myself. I'll just do it. I'll just go into a bar, I tell myself. I can go to a bar. I don't have to drink, but I can go to a bar. These are all in quotations, by the way. These are things that I'm just shouting at myself, evidently. Probably in my head at the time. 
Whilst mid-stride amongst the urban streets of Bushwick, I pull up the address of a place mentioned in Chloe's guidebook. It looked pretty decent. It was by no means a bourgeois establishment, but it wasn't exactly a hovel either. Like some kind of sad, dejected real estate stalker, I looked in... I don't even know what that means. Like some kind of sad, dejected real estate stalker. Like somebody that is a realtor that's really obsessed with a particular building, I guess. I looked intently across the street at my chosen destination. The bar in question had no windows and the door was solid wood from top to bottom. There was no way of seeing inside without actually entering. I felt like this put me at a severe disadvantage and it made this all-too-simple task that much more nerve-wracking. Really, with the glorious golden hue of hindsight, this was a ridiculous way to feel about something so utterly insignificant. But at the same time, this aspect of lone travel was really starting to eat away at me. I guess because it's considered such a social activity, I was finding it hard to make the adjustment from a solitary position. I desperately wanted to dive right in with my eyes closed and my arms wide open, but the mere thought of it forcibly pulled up the very roots of my anxiety, leaving them red raw and exposed for all to see. As I waited for traffic to pass, I began to internally motivate myself while simultaneously trying to calm the panic in my chest. I don't know if he could do both of those things at the same time, but hey-ho. Once it was clear, I crossed the road, and with a head full of steam and a stomach full of uncertainty, I pushed open the solid wooden door. As it swung open, the entire hull of the bar was visible to see, and as my nose peeked in over the threshold, two patrons and a barmaid simultaneously turned their heads to look right at me. As soon as I appeared, literally all eyes were on me. It was a swinging kick of instant attention which made me spin right back around and exit just as fast as I had entered. On the odd chance that one of the three presumably normal human beings I had just encountered were to follow me outside, I quickly began to hustle up the street and out of sight. In the hopes of conquering this phobia, I was determined to try it again. At a different bar though, of course. I'd picked out a local place named Gotham City as my next potential attempt. I figured, if I'm going to break the seal, where better than here? So after tracking down the building on my phone, I find myself gazing upon its entrance from outside. But once more, I was presented with a non-transparent door, this time made from reinforced steel. Again, impossible to see inside, I start psyching myself up upon my approach. With shallow breaths and shaking hands, I nervously bound towards my target, However, this time, I didn't even make it to the door handle. A few feet before reaching the entrance, I took a sudden improvised swerve, the kind you see when two magnets repel. For a second, I contemplated turning back and finishing what I had started. But after a second of desperate contemplation, I dismissed the idea and stormed off down the street, pissed off and disappointed with myself for not being able to complete such a simple human function, I drudged back to the apartment. I actually feel like I'm being a little bit harsh to myself here. Yeah, it is a simple enough thing once you've kind of got over that hurdle, once you've kind of eventually got past that fear. But when something really does resonate a sense of anxiety, it's as simple as it may seem from an outside perspective or from a, a perspective, as they say, past the hurdle, over the hurdle, in the moment when it is generating and creating that anxiety, it's the worst thing in the world, no matter how simple it is. So I feel like I'm being a little bit harsh to myself there. So I just want to say, past self, from me, present self. Don't be so harsh on yourself, kid. When I got back, I didn't even attempt to talk to Alyssa. Alyssa, by the way, if, if you missed the first episode, is a pseudonym for the woman that is now my wife. That will play into things in a little bit, so that's, that's a good thing to bear in mind. 
When I got back, I didn't even attempt to talk to Alyssa. Even if I did, what would I say? Soured and in the most petulant, self-pitying fashion, I slid beneath my duvet and sank into the dark. I wasn't tired, not in the least, but at the same time, sleep seemed like the perfect way to distract myself from the cold, hard truth. I was wasting my nights, and when this really could be a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal, I didn't have that many nights left to waste. On the back of the previous evening's events, I was determined not to throw away my fourth night in New York. Instead of playing another round of the redundant will-I-won't-I game, I opted to stick with something proven, something familiar, and frankly, far more comfortable. I went to see another movie. I didn't return to the Nighthawk, although one day I would very much like to. In fact, I didn't frequent any theatre that evening. Instead, I attended my very first outdoor screening. It's something I've always wanted to scratch off my would-be bucket list, and the Brooklyn Bridge Park seemed a perfect place to do so. The film in question was Attack the Block, a British sci-fi comedy that I had already seen some years prior, and although I enjoyed the film just as much upon second viewing, it wasn't so much what was screened which made the evening memorable, but the experience of the screening itself. Alright, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there really is just a whole lot of unnecessary detail here. So basically, I got there an hour early and I brought something to eat, sandwich, fruit and some drinks. You know, it's easy enough to just say that, but I've taken about five or six lines to tell you all of this. I also forgot to bring a towel and and so I just had to sit on the ground and ended up getting a sore backside. So yeah, that's, that's saved you about... <laughs> A few minutes of unnecessary description. The atmosphere around me was well worth the discomfort. For despite being alone amongst a sea of strangers, there was an illuminating ambience threading its way throughout the park. An almost tangible presence of humanity subconsciously exposed and moulded into a somewhat metaphysical embrace. Oh, no. Just, Just, there was a lot of people around. And it was nice to see, you know, there were there were friends, there were there were lovers, there were family members. It's just you know, people being people, connecting, and it was nice. <laughs> it's what I'm trying to say, but um, uh, doing so in the the most flowery, ridiculous fashion. All right, what have we got here? As I looked around, I saw it unfold amongst an abundance of people. Old acquaintances picked up where they last left off, whilst new relationships bathed in the rosy glow of discovery. (sighs) Immediate families and extended kin retread familiar anecdotes. Lovers from past lives navigated awkward silences, whilst newly found platonic friends in the present forged fresh memories. I don't know all of this. This is such poetic license. There was just a lot of people around. They seemed to know each other for various different reasons and they were having a good time. That's (laughs) that's basically what that was. All of this and so much more surrounded me that sweet summer's eve. Everywhere you turn there were people laughing, smiling, taking pictures and unpacking picnics. Yep, 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 yep. There was an undeniable contagion of happiness making its way throughout the crowd, the kind of natural simplistic joy that I wouldn't have found in any bar that night. The simple combination of people connecting against such a stunning natural canvas hit my emotions twofold. I I suppose I've skipped something here. There was the sunset coming down, which was lovely. See, all of this is actually really nice. Seeing people together, being happy, connecting, meeting up with friends, going on first dates, all of it is lovely, especially when you have this beautiful backdrop of of the sunset in in the height of summer going down. It really was a lovely, lovely scene, 
uh, and a great place to be. I just go all the way around the houses and back again to tell you about it. But that's what was happening, in a nutshell. Despite my searing level of social awkwardness, it felt good to be amongst people and to experience in some part the prickling sense of glee. But adjacent to this, there was also a deep sense of longing. As I gazed upon an unfurling tide of acceptance, I longed for what it is I could see, but did not have. Out of all the moments that occurred during my time away, this is the one that I keep replaying in my mind. This is where I found myself to be on the outside, truly looking in. Alyssa had popped into my mind several times along my journey thus far, as she had a habit of doing every day, but the very thought of her hadn't burned this intensely for almost seven months. It's a little bit of a flashback for you here. It was a cold December weekend in Manchester and I was sat in the middle aisle of an unfamiliar church. I was there for the wedding of one of my best friends, Gina. It was the first wedding I had ever attended and despite having known Gina for a number of years, it was also the first time I had met her in person. As I watched her and her now husband exchange their vows at the altar, I was hit sideways by an unrelenting force of emotional juxtaposition. I found myself crying with happiness because my dear sweet friend had found somebody whom she truly loved and who could reciprocate that love just as much. Here they were on the cusp of building a brand new life together, yet here I was alone, whilst the person I truly loved was halfway across the world. She should be here with me. I wish she was here with me. I would do anything for her to be here with me. This exact train of thought departed from Manchester in December, only to find itself arriving in Brooklyn less than a year later. That same internal feeling reared its head only to once again provide a double-edged blade of purified happiness and melancholic longing. A profound duality of emotion for somebody who even now, despite being closer in terms of physical distance, still felt so far away. So yeah, this was uh, this was sort of a, a profound moment in my trip. I mean, I very much missed. It's weird because I suppose some people may be able to sort of connect with this. It depends on your situation, depends on your life circumstances, I guess. But having somebody who means so much to you in your life that you've not actually physically met yet, but you know online that you've really got to know the finer details of because of that distance. Yeah, it puts you in a position where you know somebody so well, you've not met them in person, and yet you miss them despite having never met them. It's a very strange grey area that is on one hand wonderful because you've got to know somebody in in so many nuanced ways, and they've got to know you in so many nuanced ways, but you don't know them know them because you haven't actually spent physical time with them which is a huge thing which is something that you know is is a game changer for a lot of people I guess understandably so yeah I was in this very strange dichotomy of being at this this wonderful scene in amongst this wonderful scene and yet enjoying the sort of the (laughs) the very elaborate descriptive waves of humanity around me, but yet missing the person that I I, I hadn't even met yet properly, but who I, I just loved entirely with every fibre of my being. Strange place to be, but very, very profound, really crystallised 
what I wanted, looking around, seeing people in, in the midst of what seemed like very healthy, happy, joyous connections, and uh, as as good as it was for me to take this trip by myself as much as I needed to do that alone, it, um, yeah, it, it really did just crystallise how much I felt about <laughs> Alyssa, uh, who, you know, obviously it ended uh, pretty well, because <laughs> she's now my wife. But uh, yeah, it, it really, really sort of brought to life and really, really brought home how much she meant to me and, and just how much uh, I, I not so much wanted but needed her in my life. Wow, we've just got suddenly very emotional. <laughs> Don't worry, there's plenty of other ridiculous shenanigans on the way, but yeah, yeah, for real, that was that was a very very defining moment not just on that trip but in in my life in general all right guys we are going to move on to the morning of day three this is the penultimate day in my stay at new york i am just tipping over the halfway points i head out to tina's the diner in which i went with mia the day beforehand to get some breakfast uh, I kind of bitch about the lack of atmosphere in Tina's. I also get into the fact that I was obviously, because I'd been there with Mia the day before, thinking about that conversation, thinking about meeting her. And as that happens, you know, just just out of nowhere, just absolute serendipity strikes. And I get a text message from Mia asking if I wanted to go to an art exhibition she was going to that night. And, you know, kind of trying to embrace that whole once-in-a-lifetime kind of mindset. The idea of integrating myself back into society like a wounded animal that's been looked after in some sort of uh, wildlife preservation. Uh, I say yes. I say why not. So we agree to meet outside of Tina's at 8pm. And that takes us on to the last section of this ill-fated travel memoir. It is... uh... It is my night out with Mia, the Australian video game writing woman with kids who's left them to go travelling the globe and dig through catacombs and kayak through jungles and go to art exhibitions with me. <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time and we're about to dive into it. So pulling exactly from the book, here we go, this is, uh, this is my night out with uh, with Mia. About ten minutes after our agreed time, Mia turns the corner to greet me. Just as chipper and upbeat as the first time we met, she's a little flushed in the face, but raring to go. She gives me a quick hug before leading us into what she thinks is the right direction. You see, Mia hasn't been relying on the modern comforts of GPS to get around. Instead, she's been kicking it old school, boning up on street maps and storing roots inside of her head. And to be honest, this kind of amazes me, as I have become so dependent on Google Maps that it's alarming to see somebody even attempt to get around purely on recall. Yet, impressively, she's done so without fault. That's if she actually did do that, and she wasn't just saying that. Something I, I learned about Mia is that I didn't inherently trust everything she said. In fact, I, I really kind of cast a, a suspicious doubt over a lot of the things that she told me. And I don't know, maybe it was just my mindset at the time. Maybe it's just there is there is a part of me that is very sceptical about a lot of stuff. People especially. But yeah, I thought, considering you've only just got here and you are doing all these different things, when do you have the time to just sort of memorise street maps and stuff? So I did question that a little bit. Who knows? Maybe she's like a navigational savant. 
The closest I'd come to emulating an analogue sense of navigation in New York was the night of the outdoor film screening. Between listening to music on the journey down, navigating towards the park and taking photos, I had worn my battery down to a nub. With not enough juice left to electronically guide me home, I had to use my phone's dying moments to pull up my route and make short and almost indistinguishable notes on my hand with a biro. It was a desperate Hail Mary, one that presumably made me look like a lunatic as I feverishly scribbled on myself. Yeah, this is true. I'm just absolutely paranoid that I would never make it back to my Airbnb. I had uh, the the route on Google Maps up in one hand, and I just kind of flipping my head back and forth to kind of make shorthand notes based on the directions. Yeah, I, I am I'm absolutely awful with stuff like that. With my phone fully depleted and only a scattering of ink smudges and scrawled handwriting to lead me back, I'm amazed I made it to the apartment at all. Still, despite my miraculous return, I wasn't about to abandon the comfort of GPS any time soon. Just as well, really, as during my time with Mia, my sad dependency on technology actually came in handy. So basically, she she claimed that she knew where she was going, she had it stored in her head, uh, and she took us in one direction, it was completely the opposite. So, yeah, pulling up Google Maps, using my soft, soft Western dependency on technology... I, uh, I I got us to, to where we were going to, which is uh, the art exhibition previously mentioned. The exhibition on display is called Skype Heartbreak Show, and is being displayed in a small building named The Chimney. As we head inside, what I see surrounding the exhibit is a congregated human catwalk of vintage clothing. Oh, again. Oh, I, I thought at some point we might have reached like a saturation point where I just, even then, realised... I was over-egging the the word pudding, but evidently not. As we head inside, what I see surrounding the exhibition is a congregated human catwalk of vintage clothing. A procession of boutique garments on racks of flesh cradling glasses of wine. Oh. Oh. Already it reeks of pretension. Again, who am I to talk? Who am I? Actually stepping into the exhibit itself and taking the time to look beyond the surface, I quickly find that there is a lot more to the installation than my disparaging eye first perceived. The premise of the piece, and this is actually really cool, I I think this was actually really cool, the premise of the piece is to depict the breakdown and decay of a young couple's long-distance relationship. This is done through a series of video calls, emails and instant messages filtered with glitches, pop-up ads and other internet-based intrusions. In a crude simulation of said relationship, two separate monitors are set up in the middle of the room, each with a keyboard and an Xbox Connect camera of their own. One side represents the female's viewpoint, giving you the opportunity to see incoming correspondence from the male, whilst the other side reverses the roles, giving you the man's point of view. Apparently, the elaborate piece has been rigged in a way that alters the emotional level of communication according to the audience's proximity. So the larger the distance between you and each monitor, the more messy and fractured the breakup becomes. I can't say whether this was true or not, as we didn't really stick around to see the exhibit fully fleshed out. Which, I must admit, was a shame. Despite my initial snippy attitude, I actually found the whole thing really quite fascinating and pretty damn poignant. Looking at it from a general perspective, there was a definite resonance to the exhibit. One that echoed with great effect. We invest so much of ourselves in technology that it's become an almost symbiotic part of our being. 
We upload insightful moments of time on the daily, document our existential thoughts in 140 characters or less, and broadcast little intimate details about our relationships. We are essentially a collective hive of online scrapbookers, outlining the most intimate and inane details of our existence in digital ink. This is perfect proof of that. A behaviour that presents the possibility of preserving precarious moments again with the alliteration. Oh. <sighs> a behaviour that presents the possibility of preserving precarious memories. But at the same time, those endearing trinkets can also serve as painful trophies of former happiness. Breadcrumbs of remembrance which can act as the slowest of poisons. A forgotten holiday photo here. A recommended friend request there. These individual threads progressively entwine to create a lingering tapestry of melancholic recollections. By capturing our lives in such vivid colours, we leave ourselves vulnerable to a future which could be haunted by the presence of our past. An idea that sinks deeper into the forefront of my mind as I continue to watch the virtual corrosion in front of me. I really could do with throwing in some commas as well. That's another gripe I have with past me and, and my writing style, quote-unquote. I think... Despite it being really stodgy and just, like, overly wordy, again, younger me's heart's in the right place and his mind's in the right place as well, you know. Uh, we are all guilty of just documenting everything and anything, and myself especially. And in a lot of ways, yeah, these are great memories that we're preserving until they're not. And occasionally we may stumble across things like, for instance, a travel memoir you haven't seen for six years and uh, uncover some things which you don't particularly want to see or be reminded of. Anyway, back into it. Considering my relationship with Alyssa was forged in the very same video messaging system used for this exhibit, the all-too-fleeting glimpse I caught of the installation rung true in so many ways. The rich, honeyed comfort of falling asleep on the phone with one another, feeling that inexplicable closeness in the sound of her sleeping breath, the jittery excitement of waking to find an inside joke texted across the time difference that separates you, the increasing dependency, the mounting insecurity, the paranoid questions, the possessive smothering, the mistrust and the eventual disconnect. From its harmonious start to the niggling glitches and the inevitable crash, it was all there to relive once more. Yeah, see, this whole thing really did capture my attention in a big way. I really liked the intelligence behind it. I liked the creative framing of it, the idea of doing two sides to an online relationship, riddled with glitches and pop-up ads and just general digital decay. But yeah, it just it really captured my attention from that point, but it also kind of captured my heart because I had been through uh, a similar situation, you know, with uh, <laughs> Alyssa. We'd been through uh, good and bad and kind of gone along uh, a trajectory of our own online. So, yeah, it was it was really quite poignant. To see another couple reach the same glorious peaks and ultimately fall into the same desperate valleys resonated on so many levels. To see the difficulty that comes with being separated from someone you truly care about by the unrelenting forces of circumstance drew out sympathy, empathy and a brief but piercing sense of pain. Although seeing it played out on a fictional canvas with digital effects didn't touch upon the fringes of its real-life counterpart, it was still hard to digest. So perhaps, as much as I would have liked to delve deeper into the exhibit, Mia's insistence on leaving was the best plan of action. I never did find out why she wanted to leave so quickly. I found it strange considering it was her idea to go in the first place. 
What I did find, however, throughout the course of the evening was several more shards of Mia's interesting and somewhat inconsistent story. Upon leaving the exhibition, we found ourselves in a local dive bar named Legion, an establishment hinged on cheap beer and a scrappy aesthetic. Faced with the option to break my seven-and-a-half-year streak of sobriety, I opted to maintain the status quo and ordered a Diet Coke, much to the barkeeper's apparent chagrin. Armed with our drinks, we moved through a spare room to find a table to the corner. It's here that I quizzed Mia about the art exhibit and how it came to her attention. From this line of questioning, I found out that she is working on a video game script, and that said script is actually a project for her course in creative writing. Now, how long she's been studying for, and why she's specifically writing a script for a video game, these are answers I did not find. I did ask, but Mia either legitimately didn't hear me, or simply chose not to. I did, however, learn what the narrative of the video game entails. As the bar's resident DJ, a man who could easily be mistaken for Truman Capote. <laughs> he could, actually, yeah, thinking back, this, this fella did look a lot like uh, Truman Capote. Anyway, he was spinning a nice collection of alternative 80s tunes. In particular, I do remember uh, Bring Out the Dancing Horses, by Echo and the Bunnymen, which is just mwah, chef's kiss. If you've never heard it, do yourself a favour. Mia began in her usual fragmented and clustered fashion to explain the story behind her script. And from what I could gather and assemble, the game revolves around a girl who can teleport to various locations across the planet. Locations such as India, Sweden, Paris and New York. All of which were of course stops on Mia's very own international journey. It also bears mentioning that the fictitious interpretations of her global adventure were also somehow tied to giant spiders that were invading Earth. Again, I persevered in an attempt to decode Mia's explanation and to get a basic understanding as to why exactly the Earth was under threat from oversized alien arachnids, but despite my best efforts, I got no further forward. Whilst gently sipping her second G&T of the evening, she did however tell me that the basis of her script was influenced by a dead artist whom she admired greatly. Subsequently, I also learned that Mia had spent that very afternoon looking around the former apartment of said dead artist. As much as I had been grasping onto the bewilderment behind the whole giant spiders thing, the latest revelation, well it jumped to the front of the queue when it came to confusion and curiosity. Why were you wandering around a dead woman's apartment, I asked. But in what was becoming standard fare, my answer didn't have the direct impact that it ought to. From what I could gather, Mia had spent the afternoon poking around the belongings of a deceased woman she'd never met, simply to obtain a pure sense of inspiration. Mia freely admitted that this woman's work had been sampled and applied to her own. So, in an unusual twofold agenda, she visited the dead woman's home to simultaneously pay respect and to imbibe her artistic influence. Her intentions were well-meaning enough, but the idea of waltzing around a dead stranger's living space seemed a little odd, and to be honest, kinda creepy. Although having said that, a part of me really wanted to push this conversation further in the hopes of gaining a little bit more clarity. At the very least, I wanted to hear about what she had found and how the whole experience had felt. My mouth was poised to dissect the unusual circumstances further, but the look on Mia's face suggested that it just wasn't something she was prepared to discuss any further. With the roots of a somewhat stifled atmosphere slowly starting to embed themselves between us, again, just, ugh, I can't just say things were getting awkward. 
I've got to go there. I've got to go to that far-reaching place every time. With the roots of a somewhat stifled atmosphere slowly starting to embed themselves between us, I felt it best we move on. So as the DJ dropped the needle on Hounds of Love by Kate Bush, another cracking tune by the way, we finished our drinks and decided to head out to another venue. Yeah, so I really don't, to this day, fully understand what that was about. Um, Presumably it was, as I say, to kind of go visit, in a sense of respect, someone whose work she greatly respected and admired, but also to kind of look around and sort of... What did I, how did I describe it? Imbibe her artistic influence. So see if there's things in there which you can kind of pick up on and and kind of adapt, maybe. Or see if just inspiration strikes. It is a little bit weird, it is a little bit creepy, but I'm actually less sort of bugged out by it than I was back then. Which, you know, you could say that about just about anything. But yeah, it it, it is a little bit strange, it is a little bit weird, but it's it's not as perplexing I think as it was back then alright so this is us leaving the bar leaving the, the Truman Capote DJ leaving the conversation of giant spiders and uh, international globe trotting and dead artists behind us and we're off to go and find something to eat once outside Mia suggested we get something to eat when asked what kind of things I'd like to eat the gap between our similarities grew exponentially where Mia was partial to all manners of organic and exotic cuisine from far off lands my finicky diet orbited mainly around cereal sandwiches, pizza and meat. Again, that has changed. Uh, I have not had meat in a year and a half. I think I've been vegetarian now. Which is weird because I never, ever, ever, ever would have thought that that would be something I'd give up and give up pretty easily. But I suppose uh, we surprise ourselves from time to time. But yeah, at the time... <laughs> Uh, yeah, my diet really did kind of just orbit around those four cornerstones, cereal, sandwiches, pizza, and just meat in general. My eating habits were and still are pretty basic and predictable, but I'm totally fine with that. I am not, nor will I ever be, an adventurous foodie. I mean, to this day, I still haven't even sampled a kiwi fruit or even a melon. Yes, really. Just uh, a little update on that in case you were wondering. Still haven't had a kiwi fruit, still don't want to, and it's simply because of the little hairs on the jacket. And I know what you're going to say, you don't actually eat the jacket, you don't eat the little hairs. I know this, but it's still enough to make me go, nah, not having it. A melon, I have had. A watermelon, I've had. Apparently not a proper watermelon or good watermelon, because apparently... Watermelon from an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet doesn't count. I say bullshit, it does. What do you guys think? I know exactly what you're going to say, and I'm just going to ignore it anyway, so just forget I even asked. Foolishly, I seem to have forgotten this for a moment, as I inexplicably told Mia that I wasn't bothered what we had, and that I was fine with whatever she wanted. As soon as the words left my mouth, my overactive and irrational imagination kicked into gear, projecting a slideshow of frightful images into the forefront of my mind. This is, this is, this is peak 30-year-old me. Like, I talked about me catastrophizing things in the last episode. This is it. This is, yeah. (laughs) This is a prime example. Leaving Mia in charge of dinner arrangements could lead anywhere, from eating endangered turnips buried for decades by farmers to scooping out monkey brains from freshly opened skulls. <sighs> oh, I am such a drama queen. Wow. 
I mean, like, there is somewhat of a more fringe aspect to Mia. There's more of an adventurous sort of international, uh, dare we say, not ignorant AF attitude. (laughs) But honestly, like, yeah, no one's doing that. No one's reenacting Indiana Jones dinner scenes. The reality, of course, as it always is, was a lot tamer and considerably less terrifying. Mia settled on a nearby Japanese restaurant after I declared that I had never eaten Japanese food before, a fact that seemingly astonished her. As I drank in my surroundings, I noticed that for a Japanese restaurant, Mikos wasn't very Japanese at all. With the exception of one Asian waiter, every member of staff was Caucasian, and the only music to be heard throughout the restaurant was either reggaeton or calypso. I know this was my first time in a Japanese restaurant, but even I know that white guys in bow ties bustling along to the sound of steel drums isn't normal. It was a bizarre clash of cultures that made zero sense whatsoever. But, if I'm being honest, I absolutely love the fact that Mikos had no sense of rhyme or reason. In a somewhat demented fashion, it gave the place a sense of character. And this is true, it really was a hodgepodge of all of those things. It didn't make any sense, but I loved it nonetheless. I loved it because of it, to be honest. After flicking through the menu, I settled for the safest option available, which ultimately turned out to be quite a delicious decision. I opted for a Koji beef burger. I think I'm saying that right. Who knows? Probably not knowing me and my reputation. Koji? Or Koji? We'll go with Koji. I opted for a koji beef burger, but instead of a bread roll, it was served on a bed of rice with a fried egg on top. Oh, do you know something? I, Yeah, I can see that right now, and that was absolutely A1. Beautiful. For somebody who stubbornly sticks to what he knows, especially when it comes to food, I have to admit that the whole ethos of trying something different can sometimes yield spectacular results. I'm going to go one further. You know, looking back with hindsight... And I wish I could sort of tell myself this from the future. Trying something different usually does yield spectacular results. I mean, not always. There are, you know, there are definite exceptions. But for the most part, absolutely. If you're listening to this and, and you are in the same mindset as 30-year-old me, where you're just like, ah, oh, no, I'd just be disappointed. I'm just going to stick to what I know. That's, you know, I understand that. I get that. There's a place of comfort. There's a place of security. But I am telling you, because I was that person, do it once in a while. Push yourself. Challenge yourself. You'll be surprised. Maybe the unconventional structure of my meal was a sign that I really should be looking to break convention more often. Or perhaps it wasn't the food, but rather the unconventional structure of my companion which propelled this particular train of thought. After all, underneath the entangled anecdotes, the half-baked explanations and strange behaviour, Mia seemed to be thriving within her uncertainty. She was further away from home than I was, had more responsibility in her life, and yet somehow she was far more liberated and comfortable with the idea of letting go. In a strange turn of events, I now found myself sat opposite this woman. This woman who, prior to meeting me, had been schlepping around a dead stranger's home. I found myself observing the peaceful demeanour of this perplexing anomaly. <sighs> it just—it doesn't stop. It, this train does not stop. I found myself observing the peaceful demeanour of this perplexing anomaly and wishing that I could be more like her. Wishing I too could be free from all the noise inside. And it's kind of true, actually. 
you know, at the time, I did find Mia to be quite unusual. Like I said before, she is definitely a character. She's somebody that struck a chord because she was so wildly different to who I was then. Now, I think if I were to meet her and she was this incarnation of her, um, we'd actually get on a lot better because the, the gap in difference is a lot smaller. I'm a lot more... Not like her, but I guess more of a like mind than than I was for sure back then. But then that comes with time and growth and just kind of finding yourself and kind of finding a comfortable place with yourself, I guess. Which I suppose this is the one one major sort of plus that I've got from diving back into this travel memoir is seeing how much more comfortable I've become with myself. And it's nice, it's actually reassuring. I mean, there are there are points, there are many phrases, there are several overly descriptive sentences which just are awful and uh, do do make me despair. But at the same time, you know, I've, I've moved far, far away from that and from the mindset that produced that, which is good. After dinner, we headed into Williamsburg, which in recent years has earned itself a reputation for being somewhat of a hipster's haven. We ended up in a venue that seemed to have taken the key principles of your average dive bar and fine-tuned them to fit a younger demographic. Behind the bar sat a window the length of the liquor cabinet, and through it you could see the live music performance from next door. The tiny girl on stage was sporting a bright pink wig and was improvising what looked like dance routines, but ultimately, she could have been having an epileptic fit. Think Ian Curtis crossed with Natalie Portman's character from the film Closer, and you can pretty much envision what I mean. As she fiddled with the settings on her laptop, various lights were dashing across the room, and a number of cat memes pulled from the internet were displayed on a projector behind her. Although you couldn't hear the sounds that the electric kitty was teen bopping to. <laughs> what. The. Hell. You couldn't hear what sounds the electric kitty was teen bopping to. I, I guess I'm just correlating the cat memes, and, and just like the EDM, which is a phrase I hate by the way. Uh, type of music that seemed to be going on, and and hence I've created Electric Kitty. Although you couldn't hear what the sound, uh, although you couldn't hear what sounds the Electric Kitty was team bopping to through the glass partition, it looked like a train wreck of noisy proportions. Instantaneously, I was in. I wanted to sample the molten mass of sound and light firsthand. A mix of curiosity, the desire for spontaneity, and the sudden insatiable urge to dance had me chomping at the bit to venture next door. Sure, the stifled chemistry between myself and Mia combined with an ever-increasing circle of strangers could burst open the floodgates of awkwardness, but honestly, at this point, I didn't really care. I wanted to lose myself in that music, I wanted to throw myself into the deep end of sensory distortion. If I couldn't silence the self-conscious noise inside, maybe I could drown it out. Maybe I could find a moment of dystopian salvation in the form of bleeding electronica. This was the kind of uncertainty I liked. Forget new food choices, forget forced conversations in the corner of a bar. Give me primal movement and loud music. And it's actually kind of true and and speaks a bit of truth to, to just like my previous incarnations before this is, uh, you know, a, a good way for me to throw myself into social situations and, and just kind of... I guess, block out a lot of the noise that was going on would be to sort of envelop myself in loud music, loud live music was always great for that. Um, And so I guess I was just kind of like the moth to the proverbial neon flame. (laughs) as just like strobe lights will continue to pulse next door. 
Uh, and you couldn't hear. It was like a soundproof partition, but you could see just people just losing their shit, just just going ape. Um, and I wanted in. Tickets cost $10 each, a price which was apparently a little too rich for Mia's blood, especially when she had no idea who it was we were paying to see. I was a little taken aback by this. I know that Mia had a budget to consider, but surely this was her bread and butter, right? Improvised events that had a real 50-50 chance of becoming either golden experiences or soured regrets. But again, even after I offered to pay for both of us, it just wasn't meant to be. As the brightly coloured sprite pounded the touchpad on her computer next door, we stayed on the gentle side of the divide. Me with my Diet Coke and Mia now nursing a glass of water. She'd quickly descended into shutdown mode, curbing her drinking and her enthusiasm simultaneously. This left me wondering, was she finding my company an uphill battle? Was she as perplexed and as challenged by my demeanour as I was by hers? I mean, it hadn't taken long to establish our polar opposites, and perhaps now, her threshold for my insular behaviour had reached its end point. Perhaps if I had decided to break my sober streak that night, it could have turned out very differently. Perhaps we would have both willingly got drunk and embraced the freedom of the New York night. Whatever the fuck that means. I... <laughs> We may have waxed lyrical over philosophical subjects, ventured into deep abstract thoughts while downing shots. Shit, maybe I would have actually made sense of at least some of the things she had tried to explain. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe if uh, maybe if I had broken my sober streak uh, at that, that point, maybe all of the, the giant spiders invading Earth, all the Ziggy Stardust um, War of the Worlds shit she was telling me might have made some sense. I don't know. Probably not, but who knows? Too late to speculate now, I guess. But we didn't. There was no profound connection made, no altered states or liberating form of expression. Instead, we both sat there, not drinking, with awkward gaps of silence within a strained conversation. Mia, for all her frustrating qualities and jarring methods of explanation, was a good, kind-hearted and open person, perhaps a little too open for her own good. She seemed naively optimistic about everything, where I'm now considerably scorched by cynicism. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Or it was back then. Um, still is a little bit, but not as much, I don't think. She was warm and friendly to strangers where I am wary and somewhat mistrusting of those I don't know. That still is very much true. Mia, for all intensive purposes, seems to be very much the archetypal design for the perfect traveller. So I've totally misused the word archetypal. I can't even say. (laughs) I can't even say the word archetypal let alone um, use it in a correct sentence. Whilst in her company, I continue to ask myself if she really is the kind of traveller slash person I should aspire to be, or at least be more like. I am yet to find a definitive answer to that question, but even if the answer turns out to be yes, I think the possibility of becoming more like Mia is minuscule at best. We are very different people, cut from a very different cloth. She is a bohemian freewheeler. She is a bohemian freewheeler whilst I am introspective and self-critiquing. I am prepared to try new things, to embrace change and be open to the idea of different... Goodness knows how much I myself am forged in the very idea of different. But I don't think I'm prepared to bend myself into a completely new shape to fit a more suitable and expected mould. I know where this is coming from because no one is expecting me to do this. No one is putting any sense of pressure to be anything other than myself. I've not felt that on this trip at all. So, I don't know, I'm maybe just looking at somebody that is, at the time, a polar opposite. And even now, as I say, we're not the same person, we're not of the same mindset, we're closer. The similarities are are, are much more there than they were back in in 2015. But yeah, no one's, uh, (laughs) 
No one's pointing a finger at me saying this is the kind of traveller that you need to be. This is the kind of person you need to be. No one but myself. And ultimately that was one of my biggest problems for a long, long time. That was one of the biggest contributing factors to me being so socially disconnected was that I myself was holding myself to this level of judgment and just expecting other people to think as lowly as I did of myself. So, yeah. This is in in all in all honesty, like this has actually been a very good exercise for me in terms of of looking back and and seeing just just how kind of harsh I was to myself a lot of the time. And it's something I'm still working on. It's something that I still deal with. But yeah, looking at. Uh, just like the the level of vitriol that I would apply to myself, the the level of judgment um, that I would place upon myself and expect others to sort of mirror or reflect or think of a similar nature to, is uh, is is uh, eye opening. Anyway, this for some time has admittedly been somewhat of a hang up. Yeah, there you go, lingering in the back of my head. But the more time I spend with myself, the more I'm beginning to see that it's perfectly okay not to fit within that confined space of conformity and expectation. It's perfectly fine not to be the kind of happy-go-lucky adventurer that Mia is. It's perfectly fine to be different. I mean, after all, isn't that the beauty of the human race? And it really is. really is. This, actually, I will, I will say this is actually a nice way to end. And this is where we're going to end me reading from my travel memoirs. And it's a good way to go out on, I think. Sure, it's great to find similarities with fellow kin. But it's the differences that divide us which push us to further explore one another and ourselves. It's the differences between us which create the very dynamics and dichotomies which further enrich our world. Difference is beyond good. It is glorious. For without difference and alteration, we would all exist in the same stagnant state unstimulated and without a hunger for curiosity. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty miserable existence to me. It's funny because you can kind of see the sort of core DNA for this show and for who I am in that sentence, I think. You know, and it's at this point um, that I was beginning to realise the things I'm saying in that last paragraph about accepting your difference, accepting how you are not like other people, and that that's fine, that's more than fine, it's it's fantastic, you know, because it adds that sense of variety, it adds that eclectic strand to the, the, the fabric of, of life and society and just living, you know, as a whole. So it's nice, it's nice to kind of see us you know, <laughs> after a lot of sort of um, missteps, a lot of uh, things that are not great, a lot of um, destructive thinking, a lot of unnecessary judgment placed upon myself, a lot of catastrophizing. It's nice to see that we end up at a point where things haven't drastically changed, but I am becoming more self-aware to what is important and what is true, and that is acceptance, and that is knowing that it's perfectly brilliant and amazing to be you in all the different ways that you are you. And on that note, guys, that's pretty much it for this week's episode. Next week, we do have a guest. I haven't actually decided which one it's going to be yet because I have a couple of options. 
So I guess you'll just have to stick around, watch the social medias, which, by the way, if you are not following me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at I am Mal Foster. We do have a Facebook Dimed Out page as well. Just search, obviously, Dimed Out. You'll find it easy enough. But yeah, keep an eye on the social medias to see what the guest is going to be, what you're going to get next week. But it is going to be a guest because I think we've all had enough of just me for these last two weeks. We are almost at the very end of season two. We've got just a few more episodes left and it has gone incredibly fast So at the moment, I'm preparing for that, but I'm also getting into the headspace to get ready for season three. And what I want to do is, I have thrown this out on social media, you may have seen this on Instagram. I want you to throw in ideas, suggestions, recommendations for topics and subjects for season three. I do have a list of stuff that I want to touch upon, that I want to cover, that I've got lined up, but I'm always open. As I've said in the past, this is an open sandbox, this is a project between you and me. This is this is our show, and uh, you know as much as I, I do put it together, you guys listen, you guys appreciate, you give me the feedback, and I want you to be a part of what we make next. I want you to be a part of what we do in the future going forward. So yeah, if you've got subjects that you want to hear me touch upon, you want to see me cover, do please let me know. As I say, get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram at I am Mal Foster, or check out the contact form on the website dimed-out.com. If you have enjoyed this episode or last week's episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to and you want to help us out and you haven't done this already, then the best way is to simply subscribe. It helps us out tremendously and it delivers every episode from this point on directly to a device of your choosing so everybody wins. Uh, yeah, we're available on your favourite podcast platform, so just hit that subscribe button. If you do want to go a little bit further with some support, then we do have a Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash dimed out. We've got one single tier, plenty of juicy extra bonus goodies over there. I will leave you to go check that out if you are interested. If you're not, no worries. No worries at all. Alright, so there you go guys, that is pretty much it for this week. As I said earlier, next week we will have a guest, but that is next week. This is this week, and we are done. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and until next time, keep it dimed out.